and union approval ratings at an all-time high right now in this country among American workers. But that representation model may look different. And if you look at a place like California, and if you look at a place like California- That was 2015 calling. Okay, ready? This is it. This is the show. What's with the pineapple? A brand new podcast from the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association. Pineapples don't grow in Michigan. No, not native to Michigan. Let me write that down. Putting a, a hospitality spin on what exactly is going on in Lansing. Shed some light on the industry specifically in Michigan. I think we're going to have some good guests. What is with the pineapple? What's with the industry? What's going on in Michigan? We can edit this if that's not right, right? Okay, we are back. It's episode three. February is upon us, Emily, and apparently so is a major snowstorm just a couple of days away. Uh, you know, we've got a lot going on in the state of Michigan right now. We've got some great out-of-state guests again. That's right. We went national. We are bringing in our friends from Align Public Strategies in Orlando, Florida, Joe Kivover and Franklin Coley to have a really great, really in-depth conversation on what's going on with the labor movement right now. Things are changing rapidly, tectonic shifts happening. What do you need to know to be prepared to understand what's going out there on out there as a restaurateur or a hotelier? And I think the discussion gets really deep, really in-depth. And it's, uh, it's a little longer interview than we are accustomed to, but it was really good content. So we wanted to let it go and let it breathe a little bit and, and get out what it needed to get out. And it's so common now. This is only our third episode. It feels like news breaks the second we conclude recording. We had some interesting news breaks, Emily, that on the Starbucks front, something that we are watching nationally with 40 plus locations now filing with the National Labor Relations Board to seek representation to be organized. We saw four of those locations in Michigan file late Friday. So right after we recorded this interview where we had this conversation where Starbucks came up, we had four locations in Michigan uh, file. So we are bringing back, we're going to bring back Franklin to just have a, a, a succinct conversation about the Michigan specific side of this equation, because now it's not, it's not a national problem that's happening el- elsewhere. It is right in our backyard. And so if you are near uh, one of these locations, how should you be thinking about that? Might your own workforce be considering things along those lines? So we'll have that conversation. Emily, what else is going on out there? Well, to talk about the interview briefly, very quickly, I think that it is a good, from someone who does not live and breathe the details of this from a public affairs perspective every single day, I do think the conversation was very interesting. As I was sitting here on Friday, listening to what they were saying, I was learning a lot. So I think that people should continue to listen to the interview portion. And in the interview, we specifically talk about, well, it's not in Michigan yet, but it's probably coming. And what should people do to prepare for that? Operators, what should they do? And not two hours later, I got the article from you. So as as is common now, just like the Supreme Court weighing in immediately after we said, hold out. We don't know when things are coming, but uh, ruling is forthcoming. It was uh, literally within 20 minutes after we recorded last time. So but let's, let's switch gears. Emily, it's restaurant week season. It is hotel week season. What's going on out there? Yeah, so we have two restaurant weeks coming up in February and one Ann Arbor. So their restaurant week starts February 20th, but they also do a hotel week, which I believe that last year was the first year they had ever done this. It's a really interesting concept because you see, you, we've seen restaurant weeks for years. Hotel weeks are less common. And I think it was a result of the COVID impact. I and- think it's us. <laughs> I think we deserve most, if not all of the credit here, but, but go on. Or our, our members destination Ann Arbor, the, the Ann Arbor CVB. Certainly they deserve some. Well, we are working with them to promote the week, but it's a really interesting concept. It goes February 20th to the 25th. You can go to their website, Ann Arbor Restaurant Week, Ann Arbor Hotel Week to get more information. And then also up in Traverse City, February 20th through the 26th, the MRLA is a sponsor of that restaurant week. So that's happening up there, downtowntc.com. You're going to be up in that area as well. February is typically the time we see a lot of these pop up um, because it can be a a little bit of a slower time post holidays for the industry. So wanted to give those a shout out. Also, we have a webpage for our podcast, emerly.org slash podcast. We want to hear from 
our abundance of listeners. Who do they want us to interview? What topics do they want us to cover? What can we go on a deeper dive about to make this, not that it's already not worth listening to, but more of what our audience wants. What do you want to hear? This will be episode three. If this is way off base from what you're most interested in, but you find the format intriguing, let us know. We want to know. We have a lot of opportunity here and a lot of topics to cover, but we want to know what you guys want to hear. Exactly. There's a form there you can fill out. MRLA.org slash podcast. Correct. Got it. All right, Justin, going into the For Fork's Sake segment, a standing favorite segment specifically for the title. It's because the current event segment doesn't have a title. So we just eliminated it. It's gone until it comes up until we come up with a title. No more current events. Straight up GA. All right. A lot has happened. Where should we start? RRF, state of the state, the raise the wage. Yeah. We spent a lot of time last week, put a lot of resources at the association time effort to put a statewide release out and also release some economic impact data related to how this industry has dealt with the Omicron surge in Michigan. And it's a little bleak. We knew it was a challenging fall. We knew that restaurants were closing intermittently because of Omicron in different locations and different portions in the, of the state as it kind of worked its way through. We didn't realize how significantly it was impacting restaurants and, and permanently closing. You're starting to see stories more and more of of those permanent closures again, it has that sort of PTSD feel of early, early COVID. And so we have, we have pivoted that to use that data, not just to live in anguish from, from what it felt like in 2020, but to push that forward, talk to our elected officials and try to see if it's possible. Cause I think for the first time in a while, it feels plausible that restaurant revitalization fund could be replenished that a 2.0 is plausible we have a deadline forthcoming in mid to late February here where the existing federal budget is going to expire. That's going to force a conversation with Republicans and Democrats, hopefully coming together and a solution that includes some funding here. We know the first round was really, it was effective because it was such a simple application process, a simple means of getting dollars to where they needed to be quickly. And we're hopeful that what we've done is set the stage for a second opportunity and that our federal delegation here from Michigan is hearing that loud and clear. Uh, we certainly had a strong push from our members. Nearly a thousand letters went immediately to Michigan representatives and our U.S. senators. So we're, we're making an impact there and, and a lot of media, a lot of media, a lot, a lot more of my face than most people want to see in a given week. I think it's borderline impossible that they haven't heard us loud and clear because of the work that we put in last week, both from the media standpoint and sending those letters through to make the point clear. It did feel like 2020 yeah, a little bit. Yes. A lot of media and some bad news out there, but we think that we think some positive news is on the horizon. We're going to keep pushing here uh, while we realize this is a realistic opportunity. We certainly hear that from you day in and day out. And, and the surge in response on the grassroots uh, effort gives it it was it was it was received loud and clear on our part that this is still a very top priority uh, for our members. Okay, let's pivot. We got Capital Day coming up. It's actually a pretty good pivot to know that March 9th, Capital Day, one more plug to go sign up for Capital Day. This is how we make our voice heard, how we get the priorities that are important to you, to our elected officials in Lansing. So uh, where can they go sign up, Emily? Emerald.org slash events. Always a slash. That's how it works. Yeah. And I think during the interview, we did reference, you know, what can operators be doing right now as it relates to organized labor? But the response from our guests later was elected officials have never been more leaned in to our industry in this conversation than they have right now. And so take advantage of that. And in my head, the light bulb dinged and I said, Capital Day is coming. So we want you to be meeting with your legislators and sharing the message that you share with us every day when you call us. Let's make that connection and um, do some influencing. Sure. Well, two other things real quick. Governor gave the state of the state address last week, not heavy on substance, but in a, ca in a campaign year, one doesn't expect a whole lot of policy substance to be coming out. Whatever your politics and your leanings are. I thought the governor did a pretty good job setting a backdrop that set the stage for her own reelection. 
uh, later this year in terms of substance and what might relate to this industry. I thought the earned income tax credit pitch was interesting if actually implemented, and I don't believe it will be, but uh, the proposal increasing the earned income tax credit in Michigan incentivizes, at least theoretically, workers on the lower end of the spectrum to want to get back to work, to work more and, and increase that that tax credit available to them. Uh, that is a, a net positive for this industry were it to be implemented, something we as an association have long supported, advocated for. I don't think it's getting done, but that is the one thing that sort of stood out from the speech in terms of policy that, that this industry could get behind. Other than that, I thought it was 26 minutes of a solid attempt at, at, at getting reelected. Okay, moving on from state of the state, we did we we talked a lot about the minimum wage ballot proposal uh, in the last episode. Still tracking that heavily today, uh, the day that we are recording this on January 31st. Just saw some campaign finance release. Uh, releases across the board, candidates, uh, committees, uh, the the ballot committee tied to trying to get the $15 minimum wage and elimination of tip credit on the ballot, reported about $1.35 million. That's not enough to probably get the job done yet, but that's a really strong start. Gives you a sense that it's a serious effort and something that we will be taking seriously from our side here. All right, that's it. I think we covered a whole lot of ground in a short amount of time. We are very fortunate, again, to have some guests that extend beyond the mitten, beyond the state of Michigan. We're going all the way down to sunny Florida, where we will welcome Joe Kefauver and Franklin Coley. Joe is the founding partner, and Franklin is a managing partner of Align Public Strategies based in Orlando, Florida. Orlando, Florida sounds pretty nice right now, Emily. It's currently eight degrees in Michigan, boys. Well, they have been called, and this is what it says on the paper. You guys can you guys can challenge me, but it says Joe and Franklin have been called the Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid of Hospitality Industry External Affairs. That sounds like a Joe Kefauver era reference. Where, and Darden where, where, Whispers. Where, where is that? Darden Whispers. These are the two things that come up. Uh, it's on my paper. It's got to be real. Who who gave you that paper and from where did it come? It's not it's not important where it came from. It's possible I wrote it down myself and thought it was funny. It's possible I found it on Google. We're never well, gonna now, know for sure. Now it's now it's out in the world and it will be engraved in a plaque in my front door. The uh the Butch Cassidy and Sundance kid. I like, I like that. that. Yeah. Well, let me let me finish the praise to welcome our guests uh, to understand who you are before we get into some of these questions here. So Prior to starting at Align, Joe Kefauver led government affairs efforts for brands such as Walmart and Darden Restaurants. Franklin's experience draws from working on scores of candidate and issue campaigns, including three presidential races, as well as serving as a consultant to companies and associations. The two also host the Working Lunch podcast, fantastic podcast for anyone listening to this one. It provides expert analysis into legislative affairs, policy, politics, and much more. Definitely a focus on the hospitality industry on that uh, on that podcast as well. Align Public Strategies is a full-service public affairs and creative firm that helps corporate brands, governments, and nonprofits navigate their external environments and inform their internal decision-making. They're the firm of record that we go to, that I go to uh, first and foremost every single time to understand the dynamics of what's going on, not just in Michigan, and there's a lot to talk about in Michigan, but where we go to understand the trends and the trend lines that are affecting this industry uh, so we can be better prepared to represent our members here in Michigan. Does that sound about right, gentlemen? We take- I hardly recognize who you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Then I did my job. Okay. We're talking today, and you guys are the resident experts. We are seeing some real tectonic shifts in in labor, the the labor movement in in this industry, and just broadly in in America right now. So I, I want you to try to paint a picture. Let's let's go first and foremost. We we saw a change in administrations early in 2021. That changed structurally how some of these organizations that impact labor are, are led. So. You guys talk a little bit about the changes that the Department of Labor federally, the changes at the NLRB. And frankly, for some of our listeners, can you explain what the NLRB is and why they should understand its presence in the restaurant industry? Well, those are some, uh, those are some good, um, easy questions to start off with, Justin. So, Teen it up uh, for you. Yeah. Uh, so first and foremost, you know, and, and, and Franklin, you can jump in here at any time, but obviously change administration, change the focus, what we've seen with, especially with regard to the Labor Department at the Biden administration is it looks 
almost identical in a lot of ways to the uh, Obama administration's Labor Department with actually some of the same faces. Franklin David Weil with Wage and Hour Division among, you know, kind of the, the most notable. I think where 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 the biggest piece of uh, the, the biggest difference in departure for me, in my in my opinion, from the Obama Labor Department is really how they have prioritized. Joe Biden said through the campaign, I'm a union guy. They have been unabashed champions of labor unions, labor organizing, helping labor unions meet their policy goals, you know, organizing goals, whatever it may be. And they they have been unapologetic. And, and I think where you see it most is probably the National Labor Relations Board. You know, I, I think people forget that, you know, you ask what the NLRB is and, and people assume that it's supposed to be sort of a neutral arbiter of organizing activity between employers and employees. It's supposed to be this neutral referee in the middle that's supposed to kind of kind of navigate that space. And people lose sight that the if you look at the mission of the National Labor Relations Board, it is has one sole mission, and that is to enforce the National Labor Relations Act of 1936, which is the most pro-worker piece of legislation in the country's history. So it's it's really not trying to enforce this balance between management and labor. It's trying to enforce the inherent unbalance of the National Labor Relations Act. And so, you know, the business community sometimes gets their nose out of joint that the NLRBs, you know, doing this or it got their finger on the scale on, on, on the way, on the side of labor. That's the way it's designed. That's the way the NLRB is designed. It's the way the NLRB is designed to enforce it. Frankly, you want to jump in there and tell, tell Justin why I'm wrong? Well, that's, that, that's pretty good. I would say that the National Labor Relations Act was later revised under the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947, which put put it into greater balance. And, and the labor movement and unions would say, like, it, it gutted the National Labor, labor Relations Act. But essentially, the NLRB is a quasi-judicial entity that, that oversees union elections, labor organizing, and the body of law that oversees, you know, protected concerted activity in the workplace. And going back to the original law, the Wagner Act in, in 36, you know, if you think back to that time period, that's when we had a lot of strife. You know, that's when you had, you know, bloody conflicts at, at work sites and and this, the intent of this was to calm down those interactions between management and workers. And so we've had this trade union model for, you know, better part of a century now in this country. Um, and it's gone through ebbs and flows. And we're in a serious ebb <laughs> right now. Uh, the labor movement is um, we have declining union membership year over year for basically decades. And even this last year, Mr. Winslow, when we had unprecedented levels of worker activism, just this week, new numbers out show that we we continue to have a decline in, in private sector union membership. So all that being said, I'll touch back to where Joe began, which is the current context. If you look at where Joe Biden and the Democratic Party are, and you look at key players like Bernie Sanders and others, and, and I think the administration, the party's in a different place, a, a greater em embrace of the labor movement and willing to do more kind of dramatic things to help the labor movement. And so to Joe's earlier point, I do think the Biden administration, whether it's the Labor Department or NLRB or even Congress are, are in a different posture and kind of more aggressive in a lot of ways than the Obama administration was. And that's going to have a lot of implications in the coming years as we get rulemaking coming out of those those agencies. That was great. That was I, I was not prepared for that much uh, history of NLRB. And labor relations in the country. That was a little extra for our listeners, and, and it's appreciative because it helps set the stage. Because I think the context, taking a few steps back and just realizing we now have a governmental superstructure that suggests it is conducive to greater labor organizing, despite what you're seeing in terms of that trend still going down overall. But we're seeing something in the ether, and it's certainly getting picked up, whether it's social media or or standard newspaper stories picking up quite frequently. The, the trend towards more organizing. Starbucks is taking the headlines day in and day out. How many how many stores are we up to that are considering at this point, uh, like gentlemen? Like 41-ish. It literally was 35 two days ago, three days ago, the yeah. last time I looked. So that number is skyrocketing. And so my question is, you know, I guess, let me back up because I've been here 10 years. I've seen the attempts 
to organize this industry and others by SEIU, by the Restaurant Opportunities Center, in more of a backdoor way, by Unite Here in the hotel side of the equation. And it has always come across more as top-down and an effort to create what looked like grassroots, but really didn't have an underpinning desire. Is that still what we're seeing? We just have an administration that's created a structure to allow that to happen on a greater scale, or is there something different we're seeing right now in 2022? Is there something more authentic, organic that's coming up from the grassroots? I, I think there's undeniably something that's more authentic and organic coming up. I think there's some of the other as well. We can talk about that. But, you know, the one thing that the pandemic brought to us is rest. You know, if you think about the the industries that have legacy unions in them, you think about the mining industry and, you know, you think about, you know, heavy equipment or, you, you, you know, you think about these industries where they're real risk of getting seriously harmed at, at any moment, that there are real real concerns. And I'm not not suggesting that restaurants aren't, there aren't dangers in the restaurant environment. You know, certainly there are, and those should all be taken seriously. I'm, I'm not dismissing um, that at all. But, you know, that kind of health and safety place is a, is a better place for unions to organize and play and historically has been than say the wage and benefit space. It, when unions are fighting to try to get you a 25 cent an hour uh, wage increase, that's really not where they excel and demonstrate a lot of value. Uh, the health and safety place space is where they really can demonstrate value. And look, the reality is over the course of the pandemic, we've had a lot of employees that have rightfully and understandably had legitimate fears to go into the workplace at the risk of uh, being infected with uh, COVID-19 uh, for themselves and or their family members. And so that whole bundle of issues, and there's a lot of issues connected to that, whether it's scheduling through the crazy scheduling changes that, in, that, that restaurant operators have had to make just to keep the lights on, you know, with the labor crunch and, you know, shutdowns from state and local governments. And all that translates to schedules that are constantly changing that, you know, it's frustrating to employees, certainly, and then, you know, right to recall. So there's a whole bundle of issues connected that kind of stem out from the pandemic and unions are organizing on those and they're having great success. And there's a lot of worker frustration out there that's, that's still latent from these issues. On top of that, workers certainly understand that they have a lot more leverage today. Every, every day there's a new headline about how much leverage workers have. They know it, they feel it. They know if they leave this job, they can go get another job because the way the labor market is. All these things, I think, are adding to a sense of emboldening, empowerment, and, and you're seeing that bubble up. And you're seeing organizing campaigns that are not just being run top down by the SEIU across the country. You're seeing organizing campaigns in restaurants, in bars, in coffee shops, where they're organizing in a union and they're affiliating with the SEIU here. They're affiliating with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers there. They're affiliating with Unite here over there. And they're affiliating with, you know, the Wobblies over here. And so that indicates that there's an organic nature to this. I, th I think it's undeniable. The question is, you know, how long does it last? How far does it spread? At what point do the unions have to start showing kind of ROI to this, this first wave of organizing to to continue the momentum with the second, third wave and, and really start building this into a, a legit movement. I, I, th I think one thing, and I'll be quick, Justin, is I think the other piece of it is, and I'm not saying that it's right or wrong, but it's, it's, it's there, it's tangible, is that workers, in, in addition to all the long list of things that Franklin just gave, workers also feel like they were mistreated during the pandemic. They were discarded, stores closed down, they were called essential workers but they didn't feel protected by their employer. I'm not saying there's, there's merits. I'm just saying that there's this pervasive feeling out there that they were mistreated during this. And you saw, you saw, you've seen a lot of people leave the restaurant hospitality workforce permanently in part because of that. And some of them that have stayed have some bitterness and you're seeing it play out in this kind of this, this union activism space. So I think that's an important, important point to add to the mix that Franklin just noted. No, and I think it's a critical point. I, I think some of that mistreatment continues to go on today. People are still frustrated by the, even though we've moved, we're, 
we're past more, at least in Michigan, more of the acute regulations uh, on the industry, but there's still some societal angst uh, around around COVID and, and, it, and it's playing out in, in our restaurants and to some lesser extent in, in hotels as well, but these public spaces and, and people do feel a little less safe. So that's that's the multi-billion dollar question. It, did, did COVID create an environment that will have tectonic shifts for the for several years ahead into a generational level change or is this something that's going to fizzle is is the kind of uh because you're right it is grassroots and it is happening in states and in localities that are not customarily considered organizing center the the center of organizing uh in, in the united states so it's it's happening organically but do you think it's only of the moment or do you really think if we're having this conversation five years from now what's with the pineapple going on into its fifth year one can only hope uh that well i think yeah, are we still, yeah, is this is there a transformational change from where we are today in terms of this this industry being organized? I think in the labor space, you know, you're asking specifically about the labor space. I, I think throughout the the pandemic, we've seen that the, what the pandemic really did in a lot of ways was exponentially speed up changes that were already underway in a lot of different facets. Right, we were already working in this kind of moving to this this delivery mode this off-premise mode we you know we already had the the the, the third-party delivery platforms we just and, and we had brands that were slowly especially the legacy brands slowly moving that direction all the pandemic did was speed up by about a decade things that were already underway and changes to the business model changes to our operational model i should say more specifically i think that the changes in the labor market you know we had a labor shortage long before the pandemic, and we'd still be in a labor shortage, quote unquote, if there weren't a pandemic. What I think a lot of these changes were already slowly underfoot, slowly happening, and like the alcohol delivery, like to go, you know, all that, it just sped it up exponentially what was already underfoot. Franklin, you agree? I do. And I'm going to attack that question in in a slightly different way. I, I do think that the COVID bundle of issues so labor organizers go into a workplace and they kind of figure out those friction points between management and the workers. They take advantage of that, right? And so a lot of those issues right now today are kind of COVID related. Those issues will go away, right? Over time, right? Like the vaccine mandate, you know, that's a 50-50 issue. Half of people are going to have issues with it, half or not, or 60-40, whatever. But there's a segment that you can go in and, and organize and, and, and talk to them about that. That issue is going to go away over time. What is likely to stay longer, I think, is this generational attitude towards expectations of your employer, expectations of companies, expectations in the political space, and and specifically young people, our workforce right now, the lack of separation between professional life, personal life, and political life. You know, I think older generations and myself, you know, with politics here, work here, religion over here, you know, you don't, and, and, for the younger generation, there's just not that separation. And there's an expectation that the places they work at are going to align with their ideals. I think that that is something that is generational. And, and you know, we see as generations age differences in, in political ideology and changes and, you know, generations tend to become more conservative, but I, I think some of that will hang around. And so I think to answer your question, Justin, a going forward basis, I think it will be a more fertile organizing environment. But let me close with this. I do think that the trade union model that we lost half your listeners as we were going through the National Labor Relations Act and you know Wagner Act and Taft-Hartley and all that, the labor movement knows that that is not working for them, right? Like 50 years of declining union membership, that ain't working for them. Yes, they're going to push to rewrite some of the rules at the federal level. But they're also going to continue to explore new models of representation. So while looking forward, it may be a more fertile organizing environment in that workers may be more receptive to their organizing efforts and union approval ratings at an all-time high right now in this country among American workers. But that representation model may look different. And if you look at a place like California... And if you look at a place like California... That was 2015 calling. Uh, yeah, that's, right. It's a really old. That's a really old ringtone there, Franklin. But but sorry, go on. I like to kick it old school. <laughs> um, and so, if you look at a place like California, which next week will vote on the Fast Act, 
which would bring sectoral bargaining, essentially a, a Western European style labor representation model uh, yeah, to California. Go, in, go into that. That's 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 important to, for our listeners to understand. What is that? What's happening in California, and why is that unique and different from what you're, we're customarily to understand of of organized labor? Well, and it's it's less unique and and different in Detroit than it is in in other places around the country because y'all are fiddling with it. We'll get right there. Now. Yeah, yeah. You know, so. The, the concept of sectoral bargaining, you know, which is, I can't believe how deep we're going on Wagner Act and, and, and everything here. But back, what in the people the day, want. back in the day in the 30s, there were a couple of routes we could have gone as a country. And we decided to go to this trade union model instead of like a European model of like worker councils. And that was a foreign model, quote unquote. So, but that is essentially what some labor advocates are advocating for now. That's essentially what California is looking at, sectoral bargaining, where you have a board that's made up of theoretically workers from that industry, management from that industry, policymakers, experts, and that board convenes and sets labor conditions and policy for the sector. Now, in practice, in theory, that that may sound okay. What we've seen, in theory, that may sound okay. In practice, you know, that these boards, you would think are probably going to be stuffed with persons that are, you know, hostile to the industry or friendly to labor. And the closest thing to it that we've seen recently would be like in New York, where the governor can convene wage boards. And there's a couple other states that allow for this. And the results in New York have been separate standards, let's say for quick service restaurants, right? And yeah. And they convene a wage board. The governor sets who's going to be on the wage board. They appoint, quote unquote, industry representatives. And, you know, it's we would not think it's representative of the industry. And then they decide to hike the wage to $15 an hour. They bypass the legislative process. They bypass any traditional rulemaking process in state agencies. Essentially, in California, this is what they're pushing to do. In California, though, it would go much further than wages. It'd be everything across the board, all the kind of traditional labor law and labor policy and employment law and uh, policy would be on the table to be written by this board. And now you have a version of this in Detroit. Hold on. Emily is dying to get in here to understand, given the relationship of our members, where two thirds of them are are, are independents, uh, single unit independents, are they, they want to, they want to know, is is this going to impact them? So Emily? Yeah. So will this predominantly limit itself overall to larger brands like the Starbucks, McDonald's, those sorts of things? Or what should our smaller independents be on guard for in the next five years? In terms of labor organizing in their storefront or in terms of these, you know, kind yeah, of- Yeah, is this coming for them? Uh, you know, certainly maybe if you are the eccentric, large large city urban environment with a, with a chic cafe, that maybe you have a yeah. workforce that lends itself to the idea of wanting to organize itself. But the, does the the standard independent restaurant across the state have have genuine concern that its its labor force could be at risk of, of organization? Joe, you want to uh, I, you want to take a crack at that first? So uh, yeah, I would say that two, two things. It's it's so organic at this point, and it's it's you know as we've seen with most of the Starbucks stuff, um, it, it's happening from the ground up. It's not a union you know hanging around the parking lot trying to talk to employees, right? So it, because of the power of social media, because it's so organic, it can pop up. You know, lightning can hit anywhere. It can pop up tomorrow at a restaurant. Franklin and I have, have talked about this small independent restaurant in, in West Virginia uh, that just had a union election this week. Um, it can It's up and down the spectrum, regardless of size, scope, or geography. So yeah, everyone's vulnerable. No, would I, would, I, would I go to Vegas and bet that the average, you know, mom and pop bar and grill is going to have a problem? No. But, you know, the, the labor community, what, they, what they've been particularly adept at over the last you know, number of years is they, they're, they're changing the business model for the industry without a collective bargaining agreement, right? Five for 15 is, you know, five years ago, people would laugh at you. There's no such thing, right? And now it's kind of de rigueur, right? Uh, what's going on with, with paid leave and other benefits, they have moved the middle of the 50 yard line on kind of public policy issues that affect the model. So going back to the previous conversation of California, you know, let's say this thing in California goes through, we have this sectoral bargaining and the entire fast food industry has to live on this different set of wage and benefit requirements. 
and, and we have rigorous mandated scheduling. We have mandated paid leave. And what if there's what happens if there's still, you know, profitable enterprises and they've proven that they can run restaurants with this kind of Bernie Sanders Nirvana type of business model? Uh, all, all models at that point are 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 vulnerable, not necessarily from a union card, but those policy issues that that that, that the unions are driving. They're all and they're already they're already. You know, the average restaurateur in Michigan's business model looks tremendously different than it did five years ago. And that's not because of anything other than the labor advocacy community driving that, driving that agenda. Oh, that's a perfect segue. And I appreciate you making it. We're going to, we're going to, let's focus on Michigan now, because we are not without some serious issues before us here in Michigan. You guys are well aware of them. Uh, I think we talked at length about California's industry standards board and the FAST Act. We're seeing that at the city level in the city of Detroit passing in November, not a whole lot of action out of city hall uh, of where that might go. We do still think that, uh, as you had mentioned earlier, Franklin, that they are a little more healthcare focused right now in terms of creating an industry standards board, board more more around, let's say, nursing. So we aren't seeing a whole lot of organization yet. And, and stay tuned because that could change quickly in the city of Detroit. But you talked about changing business models. And if it's perceived that the world will not end, how does that impact? And we have, for the third time in eight years, a ballot proposal statewide here in Michigan that if they can collect the necessary signatures, We'll be seeking to not just raise the minimum wage to that $15 number that is so ubiquitous uh, in campaigns across the country, but also eliminating the tip credit, right? That lower tip minimum wage that employers are allowed to pay as long as tips are making up at least the difference to create the uh, a full minimum wage in the state of Michigan. That is how 43 states operate. But as my friends in California, Oregon, and Washington like to point out, they have restaurants. And those restaurants are doing okay, and they have no tip credit in that state. So is it plausible for that to, to, to move to other areas? It has been remarkable how many times Rock and related organizations have tried to eliminate the tip credit across the country in the last 10 to 15 years and have essentially failed at every uh, iteration, but they aren't stopping. There's an, another battle in Washington, D.C. that we'll, we'll know more of by June. And we have a potential battle here in November that, that would seek to eliminate the tip credit. What, what are your thoughts on, on the process, the changing nature? Is it inevitable that the tip credit will just fail to exist 10 years from now, even five years from now? Or is this, is this sort of the critical period right now and you could see it going two different directions? Because uh, it's on the mind, again, of a lot of operators here in Michigan. Franklin, I've gone first the last couple. You go on <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it is it's somewhat surprising me how much tip credit is constantly under assault. You know, I, I, I think it will continue to be under assault. There's a couple of reasons why I suspect labor advocates always have it in the crosshairs. You know, the, the reason that the tip credit has not gone away everywhere is because those that that tipped workers like it. Right. And so. Those have been some of the strongest voices in jurisdictions that have pushed back and, you know, prevented from from, you know, going away. And and mind you, you let know, let me ask you that, though. Do you think that that is still true in a post covid world that there will be as strong and united in, in support of keeping this? Because, listen, here in Michigan in 2018, it was the game changer. There were 400 uh, restaurant servers that flooded the state capitol. When the legislature was deciding whether they should go out of their way to amend a ballot proposal, essentially to keep a tip credit in, instead of uh, allowing it to go by the wayside, it, it, it was the role of servers themselves being active and activated in, in support of their own entrepreneurial opportunities, right? In, in terms of their higher ceiling to make income in this industry that I think carried the day. Do you still see that sentiment in where it, from, from the restaurant servers right now? I'm just hitting you the easy ones, all the easy ones for you, Franklin. Yeah. I mean, I think that sentiment still exists out there. Obviously the pandemic has, has changed things. And obviously the, the, the movement out of in restaurant dining throughout the pandemic has, has changed the dynamics around this issue. There's, there's no doubt about that. And I don't know to answer your question, if there, you know, the support will be at the same level that it once was, at least in the near term. I do, I do think, look, you know, how many states still have the tip credit? I, I can't tell you off the top of my head. I'm guessing it's in the 25 range-ish, 
Um, but it's 43. It's close. You're close. 43. There are only there seven you. states that have no tip credit. So look, you know, these are these are big, these are big fights in big areas with lots of locations and, and lots of workers. And you know, it, it makes sense for us to talk about this. But to answer your question, the tip credit is going to be around for a long time. I mean, look, you know, it, 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 that's a lot of states right there where it's 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 you know, I don't see it going away in a lot of those states anytime soon. Let's just put it that way. Now. In Michigan, yeah, there's no doubt you're going to be a battleground and continue to be a battleground. Other places too, but I, I do I don't think it's a settled issue, Winslow. I do think though, and I'm going to hand it off to Joe here. I do think the dying other dynamics around the issue continue to move against us. I think reputationally, it's a challenging issue for us. And and the one putting aside everything else and just looking at this one other issue that we've talked about in our podcast in the micro that is problematic for us as an industry. And we need to really get our arms around this and, and make a serious effort to, to, to address this. Is there been some actual legitimate studies, not kind of made up industry attack studies that, that have shown some linkages between, you know, increased levels of sexual harassment and tipping. And that is not something that we can turn away from or steer away from. We have to, go right into that space. And we have to make serious commitments as an, as an industry in that space. And, and I know you as an association, the National Restaurant Association have, and I know many brands have, but that has to translate industry-wide. You know, that has to translate to all operators in the industry to give us firm footing, to talk credibly about the issue. And that has just happened within the those studies have just come out within the past six months or so. And, and, and I think they deserve a, a legit look. And I think from a broader perspective, I'm going to I'm going to kind of agree with Franklin, but come at it from a very different angle, Justin. If you if you think of the step back and look at our issue portfolio as an industry, the vast majority, and and I'm not judging, it's not not a right or wrong here, just it it is what it is. The vast majority of our issue portfolio, we find ourselves in an opposing position to our labor force, right? And it's unfortunate, you know, if you're Delta Airlines. Most of your legislative priorities are about fuel and FAA and international travel. If you're banking oil, you're, you're into these other things and the employee piece of it is a small piece of your issue political portfolio. It's the vast majority of our political portfolio. And again, and it's some fault of our own. We find ourselves on the, on the opposite side of our employees. This is one issue, the tip issue, where the employer, so much of the employee base is on the same side as the employer. And I think that's why... To your point, the, the, the traditional labor activist community that's been pushing elimination tip credits had limited success on this. And I think they will continue to have limited success because at, at the end of the day, most, what, what, what's the number? You're, you're an association guy. 70% of, of Americans have worked in restaurants. Most of the folks that worked in restaurants were in a tip situation. And most of those people had a, had a, have a good, looked at it as a positive, right? So you have general public support for the tipped issue, you know, support throughout the worker base for the tipped issue. You know, in the beginning of the tip elimination, yeah, the, the, the employer community would try to identify workers to speak on this issue. They don't do that anymore. Workers are out front, you know, are getting out before the employer and, and fighting back against these. So I think you, I think they may pick off DC the ballot initiative if it's run well enough and they've done it before, but I think it'll be piecemeal and kind of hit or miss. I, I think if you look forward five or 10 years, the process of tipping will still play a major part in the business model. Agreed. You heard it here first. Hopefully that gives some level of comfort to a lot of anxious Michigan operators who see this uh, for the third time again. Emily? Yeah. So given all of this information, what do you, what would you suggest that a Michigan operator in the restaurant or hotel sector should be reading or preparing for as they best prepare for the changing labor market? Besides well, just, besides just listening to your podcast every week. just working lunch, which is that's, that's plan A from there. So the, the, um, the, the pandemic, while it was absolutely so destructive to the industry and to the business model and put a lot of our, our friends and allies, you know, out of business and some permanently. One piece of, you know, uh, uh, of lemonade that came out of that was it gave the, the industry this platform to kind of reintroduce itself to elected officials and uh, policymakers and opinion leaders. And I think 
you know, at the federal level with the restaurant relief fund, what you've been doing in Lansing and what your counterparts have been doing, Sacramento and Tallahassee and whatnot, America's mayors, you know, have, you know, stood fast and collectively are talking about the importance of restaurants to their cities, to their main streets, to their whole economic climate. Never would have happened prior to the pandemic, right? So there's this, there's this re-acknowledgement of the importance that the industry plays at the federal, state, and level, you know, macroeconomies, microeconomies. And I think for to, to answer your question, it's owners, business owners, managers, mom and pops have to continue that dialogue with their local elected officials to continue updating them on the nature of the business. They're, there's, they're keenly aware at, at a level they've never been. Their, their ear is tuned to the health and welfare of that piece of the economy. And we shouldn't let that gap close. We shouldn't let that go, go dormant. We got to keep talking to them about the pressures of, of what's happening and the labor, and what's going on in the, in the food supply and the supply chain. And just keep the best thing they can do is keep that dialogue going with their local elected officials and keep that education level as high. It's higher now than it was ever in the 40 years preceding the pandemic. And we can't kind of can't lose that energy. Franklin, what did I miss there? Yeah, I'd take a, a slightly different tact. I, I would say within our four walls, the, the most challenging part for a lot of operators right now is getting enough workers in there and, and getting good workers in and retaining good workers to keep the, the, the dang restaurant operational, right? And being a good employer of choice that puts you in a position to attract and retain workers and having good communication with employees also inoculate you against a bunch of organizing campaigns within your storefront. It also puts you in a great position to go talk to elected officials about the business model and have your employees step forward. And so it sounds simplistic and, you know, I, I, I hate to sound preachy, but the culture within those four walls and taking care of your employees. And we saw this during the pandemic where a lot of brands said we're furloughing our employees for three months or whatever, but we're going to keep them on payroll. And so when Joe and I talked earlier about, you know, employees feeling burned and, you know, feel like they were left behind, that's not necessarily true for every company. There were a lot of companies that took it as an advantage to reinforce their, their company culture that they were going to be there for employees. And, you know, look, not all operators were in a position to do that either. But I think at the end of the day, it all starts with your employees. It all starts with having a good company culture, a two-way a culture, of two-way communication, and taking the care of those employees and everything else flows out of that. And, and I think most operators know that. And I would just reinforce that instinct that most operators have that taking care of your folks and taking care of the businesses is, is where the priority should be. And a lot of the other stuff will flow from that. That's so right. And a good way to end it. We've seen, we, we have all, all operators have had to adapt tremendously in the last two years. Those who have done the best, who have weathered the storm of COVID the best are those who adapted quickly. Those who recognize that the old way or how you even thought would just, just two, three years ago was successful as a way to operate your, your independent restaurant is not going to get it done now. And as we are competing for the scarcest number of employees ever in this industry, those who are, who are incentivizing and doing exactly what you both referenced are the ones that are getting by that are not operating with 30 or 40% uh, fewer employees or they're on par or 5% down. I was just eating in a restaurant in Northern Michigan. And I said, how you guys can buy, you know, this is a hospitality driven area. Uh, you are, you are a, a high-end restaurant. Uh, are you getting enough attention up here? Are you getting, are you coming up with any workforce at all, given how scarce the population is up here and how people have been somewhat skittish to travel and they were thriving. Their workforce was bigger than it was before, and they are doing revenue better than they were pre-pandemic. And it, they precisely attribute their culture and how they treat their employees because they didn't lose anyone during COVID. No one went anywhere else at this particular location. They, they have it down and are doing it right. And it's because they incentivize, they increase pay, they, they took care of their employees when they couldn't be fully open and they have the benefit now on the, on the back end of that. So it's a great way to leave. Gentlemen, it is Friday afternoon as we record this. You are you have the benefit of being in Florida. What is what is a weekend in Florida? Let us in Michigan live vicariously through both of you. What is a what is a weekend in Florida look like for both of you? Joe, are you going boating? Franklin, are you golfing? What as as we are sitting next to our fires and it's two below zero in in, in Lansing? Uh, what are you guys going to be doing? Well, uh, it's it's as we said earlier, it's it's a much colder for us by our standards uh, weekend. We may have some record cold here uh, this weekend, but 
you know, I, I will definitely, you know, at some point, the first half of tomorrow, be, you know, on my boat doing my weekly boat maintenance. I'm going to play a little golf in the afternoon. I've got a tennis match at uh, 11 o'clock Sunday morning. So I will be outside the entire weekend, which is a pretty standard weekend for me. Must be nice. Yeah, mine is pretty similar. It's a down weekend. We don't have a lot of stuff planned, but it will involve bike rides and uh, to the to the local park here and a lot of uh, swing sets and playgrounds. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's what we'll be doing. A lot we'll of outdoor activity. Up, we'll get you up here to do some snowshoeing, some cross-country <laughs> skiing. Oh, all the outdoor activities, yeah. Michigan. What I do want to do, love. Justin, before it's all over, I do want to do the thing where you take the drill and you blast through a hole in the lake and you fish through the hole and have a little lean-to on top of that. I get ice fishing. I want to do that. Keith Hopper just wants to do that that because every movie he's seen involves a lot of drinking inside that hut. That's that's, that's why he's interested in it. I love it. That's a perfect way to end. Gentlemen, I appreciate your time and your expertise and for for being with us here and providing some guidance for Michigan operators. Uh, You guys have a great weekend and, and thanks again for being here. We're going to be bringing Franklin Coley back on in just a minute here to uh, recap where we are uh, with Starbucks and their organizing specifically here in Michigan. Good stuff. Okay, gentlemen, it's now Monday. Thank you for coming back on short notice because as is the reality in podcasting, you just never know when news might break. We spent a lot of time Friday afternoon talking about the encroaching Starbucks possible unionization happening across the country, but certainly not here in Michigan, not in our own backyard, except 20 minutes after we were done recording. What we heard was four locations in Michigan had filed with the NLRB. So it's here. It's, it's happening even faster than we expected. Do you guys have any thoughts you wanted to weigh in on a Michigan specific approach here? Oh, we've got thoughts, Justin. We've got thoughts. <laughs> I know you would. But first, I was going to look these these up on the map. But since I've got some very smart Michigan brains, Uh-oh. why don't why don't y'all give us the rundown of? So it's Ann Arbor, Grand Blanc, Clinton Township. The other one's escaping me. How does this lay out geographically? Okay, so Ann Arbor, as one might expect very closely aligned with University of Michigan. Culturally, this makes complete sense. We've already heard from a couple of our independent members over the weekend who are now concerned this is going to bleed into their world just because it's the type of environment, uh, the, the ethos, the culture that's going to spread beyond just Starbucks in their in in their community. And you said Grand, Bl- Grand Blanc? And, 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 and we've got two in Ann Arbor. We've got one in Washtetal Avenue. Uh, this is good. Yeah, this is this Zeb- is just a hack job. Washtenaw, it's also the name of the county. And 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 Zeb and Zeb Road. And yep. then we have the one in Clinton Township is on Paul Road. And the other one is in Saginaw Street in Grand Blanc. Grand Blanc. Grand Blanc. Grand Blanc. <laughs> it sounds it sounds fancy. Yeah. Emily's Emily's uncle is a former state senator from Grand Blanc. It's fancy. <laughs> we say Grand Blanc here. It, it, a lot of ads in, in, in the Midwest. Well, listen, listen, I was leaning right toward blank, but I thought y'all were fancier up there. I should have known in Kid Rock territory that it was going to be blank. But Grand Blanc so. is like a suburb of Flint. Yeah, you could say that. Justin, and Clinton Township is McCollum. You're in the heart of of suburban Detroit in Clinton Township, although it's in Macomb County. And that's where your Macomb Democrats were in the Reagan era and where a heavy, heavy bevy of Trump voters have come out the last couple of cycles in Macomb County. So north of north of the city of Detroit, but but definitely very suburban. So I thanks for uh, entertaining that um, little little tour around the state. I I think this less aligns with what you've seen in other markets, right? You've got a college town in here, as you noted, you know, that 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 kind of lines up. Flint, I think, you know, that would that would line up as well with some of the other jurisdictions where we've some of the other metros where we've seen activism. You know, one of the things before we got in previously, I had gone back through all the NLRB filings for the past six or 12 months to see kind of what the level of activism has been across the state. And because if you go back into some of these other metros, like Buffalo, for instance, or like Metro Boston, and you go back over the past 12 months, we've seen a ton of organizing efforts in independent coffee shops, 
brew pubs, this sort of thing. We've been predicting for a long time on our podcasts and our publications that those efforts in those markets were going to jump to a corporate chain. And of course, you know, it did. If you go back and you look at the filings in Michigan, I don't I, I don't see a lot of that. Like I saw a filing, a random filing at a Cracker Barrel when the institutional providers, Aramark, Sodexo, or somebody had a filing. Ton of stuff going on with Kellogg, you know, but there wasn't a lot in the restaurant industry per se, or kind of adjacent industries like, you know, coffee shops or, or bars or not even a whole lot in the hotel space. Although there was a lot around the casinos, which yet again, not, not surprising. So, you know, y'all were prior to Friday, <laughs> there, there wasn't a whole lot of activity and in kind of independence that I would say is getting ready to jump over to corporate brands. But, but now you have some Starbucks election petitions being filed. Now you've got some activism. And I don't remember if it was Justin or Emily, one of you asked before, how much do independents need to be worried? And so I would put all restaurateurs, independents included, kind of own notice. And I would be looking at these organizing efforts in kind of concentric circles out in terms of your level of exposure. So, and that's geographically, but also, you know, some other issues. So if you're across the street from one of these organizing locations, I would be paying attention. <laughs> I would be owned by a game right now because these work, your workers are talking to these workers. There's probably organizing going on within your location right now. If you're across the street, if you're down the street, if you're geographically close, then there's some other things we can look at. If you're an independent coffee shop, you know, if you if you have the same type of workforce as say a Starbucks and you're located across the street from Starbucks, ding ding, you have kind of two check marks beside you where you probably have a very similar workforce as Starbucks, probably swapping workers with them. And you know, you're close. And and I would say, like, if you're if you're an independent, you know, and you've kind of positioned Starbucks in the restaurant universe has positioned itself in a certain way with customers and with its employees. And it's attracted a, a certain type of employee and certain type of customer. There's a lot of independents that have positioned themselves in that same way. And so if you are, if you've been, if you're swapping workers with a Starbucks, if you then you need to be paying attention right now. Everyone in these markets, everyone in Ann Arbor should be on their A game. But the closer you get to what I just described there, you're, you're getting closer to their organizing model. And I would be on high alert if that's the case. Well, I think in Michigan, that's going to be particularly interesting for a brand called Bigby. Very Starbucks-like in its offerings uh, and, and quality, much more of a, a premium coffee location, Michigan-based, and have their locations most saturated here. Than, than They're a national chain at this point, yeah. but, but the highest concentration, uh, as you might expect, being here in the home state of Michigan, that Starbucks coming here would would put on red alert their own franchises uh, across the state as well. And just to, and just to hit on that, Justin, just before Starbucks, the largest successful organizing campaign was like three weeks before in the history, you know, in modern history, was Collectivo Coffee, which is a small regional chain up in y'all's neck of the woods, up in the up in the Great Lakes region there. But, you know, there they organized the storefronts. And I think they also organized the, the roastery as well. And so kind of the, the manufacturing, food manufacturing workers, um, in addition to the frontline um, store workers. And that was big news. That was one of many kind of independent um, smaller coffee chains that had been successfully organized within the past year. And then bam, Starbucks. So to your point, the, the, the chain you just mentioned is independent of the Starbucks campaign. We've seen successful organizing campaigns in those types of kind of independent small regional chains for the past year. And I, you need to be on your A game. You need to be really committed to positive employee relations programs in this environment. Perfect. That's helpful advice. That's a lot of extra content that we didn't even pay for. We brought in extra on a Monday. Joe Kefauver, anything you wanted to add? No, just, I, I, just a, you're the original question. Your operator is right. You know, the people that have weighed in with you are right to be concerned. To reiterate what Franklin said, I'd be less concerned about brands and targets and more concerned about geography. These folks work together. They go to school together. 
their, you know, their friends in, in their, in their private life, they're all talking to each other. If you've got activity in your community, in your neighborhood, then you're going to have activity, you know, p- potentially at your, your place of business. So forget about the Starbucks brand, forget about the sector. Uh, I mean, don't forget about them, but don't, don't put too much weight into that pit, uh, that, that part, put weight into the geography. It's, it's where this is happening. And if you've got operations in or around any of these, in these geographic sites, you should be on full alert. Okay. This has been instructive, uh, useful, helpful, probably anxiety causing for some of our uh, university town locations uh, that have that have called in and want to know what this is going to mean for them. But we're going to continue to focus on this issue very closely throughout the year. Gentlemen, I appreciate your time again, and we'll be in touch. We'll be checking in soon. And you know, we'll be, you know, we'll be listening to Working Lunch Podcast throughout the year. Another we plug. That. Got that plug in. That. I, I fully expect a uh, Kid Rock fade out here, by the way. <laughs> the, that new song is fantastic. I hadn't even heard that when you sent that the other day. Good Lord. I, I like to keep you informed, Winslow, any way I can. That would be, that would have a, by the way, Kid Rock, Macomb County, very, very much where that Clinton Township uh, location is. So you can, you can get a feel for it. All right. All right. Well, let's, let's go get together with Kid Rock, take to the streets whenever, whenever we need to. I'm ready. I got All the right. bags back. Appreciate it, guys. Mm-hmm.